And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What was Christ doing on the Sabbath? It must have been serious. It must have been unthinkable. I mean, what could Christ have been doing to cause such an uproar? To cause such problems with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were persecuting him because of the things he was doing, it says, on the Sabbath. Well, what were those things? The last couple of weeks we've been in John chapter 5, where Christ healed a man on the Sabbath. So we find out the things Christ was doing was healing people, showing mercy to people on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees considered healing someone on the Sabbath as work. Which was not allowed according to their man-made rules, their human traditions. And today, we turn our attention to John 5, verses 16 through 47. Yes, I'll say it again. 16 through 47, where Christ will respond to the charges against him, where he will respond to his accusers. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you, we recognize our lives are here to glorify you and glorify you alone. Thank you for this time that we can come together and sing songs corporately as the body of Christ. We ask that the power of the Spirit, Father, continues to to change us for your glory. We ask as we're motivated here as we're singing songs to You, why not give all ourselves to You, Father? I ask that we have that same motivation in our marriages, in our daily lives, talking to many unbelievers, that we would be zealous for You. Help us to be people like that. Zealous for You, passionate for You all the time, Father. Not just while we sing songs to You. But though it is so sweet to be able to come together and sing to you, may our lives be a worship to you. In Christ's name, amen. The question is, what will Jesus say about the charges against him? How will he respond to his accusers? Maybe he'll show the Pharisees from Scripture that he wasn't breaking the Sabbath at all by healing someone. Maybe Christ will remind them that showing mercy, compassion, helping someone in need is not breaking the Sabbath according to the Old Testament. Or maybe Christ will just rebuke the Pharisees for their wicked and prideful hearts. I mean, they wanted to kill Jesus for not following their man-made rules. Can you imagine thinking so ruthlessly? Being so filled with anger and hatred to the point that you're willing to kill somebody. So Jesus responds in verse 17. And this is what he says. My father is working until now. And I am working. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did he just say? The Pharisees are probably doing the same thing, trying to process. What exactly is he saying? 
Let's say it again. My father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus doesn't call them out on their wrong understanding of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't even try to show them how they've elevated teachings of men to the word of God. Jesus makes an astounding claim that we cannot ignore that the Pharisees could not ignore. They couldn't believe their ears what they were hearing. Look at their response in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If the Pharisees wanted to kill Christ for working on the Sabbath, well, calling yourself equal with God was definitely a death sentence. It was blasphemy. It was an outrage. The Pharisees thought they were the holy ones. The Pharisees thought they were the greatest to God. They thought they knew they were children of Abraham and they thought they were the greatest of God's children. But they would never think to call themselves equal with God, which leads to point number one. Christ is equal with God, which means he is God. Point number one says Christ is equal with God, which means he is God. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Christ was saying. That's why they wanted to kill him. And yet, we have many false religions and cults who espouse that Christ didn't actually say he was God. And as blind as the Pharisees were, the religious leaders, the scribes, it was crystal clear to them that Jesus was calling himself God in the flesh. I wonder this morning if we see Christ as God. Do we see Christ accurately this morning? Do we see Christ correctly? Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Amen? Scripture confidently confirms that our Lord and Savior is, in fact, God. Amen? But you may be thinking, okay, Christ is God. Great, Christ is God, Terry. But how does that really apply to me? How does that really help me in my daily life? Christ being God means He is creator. Christ being God means He is our sustainer. He is our protector. It means He is all-powerful. Christ being God means He is all-knowing. Christ being God means He loves us perfectly with a perfect love. Christ being God means there is hope for us. And it's not a hope-so sort of hope. No, but a sure hope, a solid hope, a confident expectation of our present situation and our future circumstances. Amen? Amen. 
And He is working, that He is doing what is best for us as His children. I pray this morning, as we go through this message, I pray that our view of Christ becomes clearer. That our view of Christ becomes bigger. That our view of Christ becomes more accurate this morning. But let's turn our attention back to John 5, since we have about 100 verses to get through this morning. Um, where we're in verse 19, where we see behind the veil. We dive deep. We see a little more of Christ this morning. We see further into the Trinity. We get a glimpse of two of the distinct persons in the Godhead as Christ talks about his relationship to the Father. Let's read John 5, 19 through 24. And this is Jesus. So Jesus said to them, talking to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So let's start by asking a basic question. We're just going to scratch the surface on some of these verses. Does Christ say people have to believe in him to be saved in this section of Scripture? Because I've had a lot of opportunity to talk to many who say we're all, the human race is all part of God's family. Christ is a way to be saved, but he's not the only way. God is just bigger than just one way. And then they give some analogy, some spiel about climbing a mountain and how different pathways lead to the same place. I'm sure you've heard that before. But is that what Christ says here? Let's look back at verse 23 and 24 to see. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So Jesus says, the way you honor the Father is by honoring the Son, right? And then he goes on in verse 24 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus says, whoever listens to what I am saying believes that God sent me has eternal life. That's what he says. But this idea of belief often is confused and misconstrued or misunderstand in our day because we think of belief as mere mental assent, like believing that two plus two equals four. But Scripture is not talking about belief that way. Simply knowing or believing Christ is from God does not save anyone. James tells us that demons believe in Christ. They know that Jesus is from God. 
and they're not saved. Which leads to point number two. Christ is Lord over our salvation. Point number two says that Christ is Lord over our salvation. The question is, is he your Lord? Is he my Lord? Have we submitted to his lordship? Have I entrusted myself to him? Have I turned from trusting in myself to trusting in Christ? The belief in our passage is active. It's looking to Christ. It's a present trusting in him. It's presently depending on him. Verse 24 ends by Christ saying, those that believe in him does not come into judgment, but pass from death to life. So what happens to those who don't believe in Christ from our passage? What happens to those people? We would conclude that they would be still under the judgment. They are still dead, it says in our passage. And if we understand what he means by dead, it means spiritually dead. So those who are outside of Christ are lost. They are condemned. They are still under, as we'll see later, under the wrath of God, it says. But why is the question? Why are people under the judgment, the wrath of God? I mean, it sounds so harsh. It sounds so narrow-minded to say only those who follow Christ are saved. Again, aren't we all children of God? Aren't we all loved by God? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 to look into this more. This is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The scripture is saying that those who aren't in Christ are separated from him. Paul says at one time, we all were dead in our sins. That means before we were in Christ, we were all under the wrath of God. That's a scary thought. Verse 2 says that unbelievers follow the prince of the air. Who is the prince of the air? Satan, right? Satan is the prince of the air. So anyone who is not following Christ, it says is following Satan. Following Satan does not mean that they are a criminal. They don't have to be a murderer or a thief to follow Satan. Satan, it doesn't mean they have to be a closet Satan worshiper or that they sacrifice their animals to demons. That's not what we're talking about here. No, the lost are normal folks. The lost are all around us all the time. We see them. We talk to them. We spend time with them all the time. This could be our next door neighbor. This could be our uncle, our aunt, our mother, our father, our grandparents. The question is, how much do we really love them? I'm not trying to be insulting, but in reality, how much do we love them? Because as I gauge my own heart, I often realize the reason I am not sharing Christ or the gospel with them is because of my lack of love for them. 
I know, if I know that my friend or family member is going to hell, then the loving thing to do is share Christ with them, talk to them about the gospel. I mean, if someone was in danger, if they were physically in harm's way, out of love, we would warn them, we would tell them, right? For example, your neighbor's house is on fire. I know I've given this example before, but it's worth repeating. It's late, and you look over, and you see your neighbor's house smoking, the flames ablaze in the house, right? And the problem is it's 2 a.m. in the morning when their house is on fire. And you think for a minute, should I call them? Or should I go over there and let them know? I mean, it's so late. If I go do that, they're going to wake up from having a good night's sleep. I mean, they get up early. The dad has a lot of meetings usually. And if he doesn't get a good night's sleep, he's going to be exhausted. His meetings are going to go bad. The children may have some important tests in the morning. And they may fail the test because they don't get a good night's sleep. Or also they may, if I go over there, they may get upset with me waking them up this early. Or they may be offended that I would dare knock on their door when their house is on fire. I better not say anything. I better just not say anything. I don't want to bother them. It's too late. Of course, this response is ridiculous, right? It's ludicrous. If our neighbor's house was on fire, we would do anything within our power to save them. Their life is on the line. We would probably call the fire department, call our neighbors, run over there, hammer on their door. We would do whatever it took to save them, right? And yet, and yet, people are spiritually on fire, literally. Worse, they are dead spiritually, the scripture says. The verdict is out. Everyone who's not in Christ are under the wrath of God, it says. And I admit, some of us do share the gospel. Some of us do talk to people about Christ, but many of us have a hard time sharing our faith because we're worried about how we will look to other people. We're worried about offending somebody. We're worried about being rejected ourselves. Let me ask you, who are we thinking about if we're so worried about ourselves all the time? Self. Selfishness, right? They may think we're one of those religious nuts, those fanatics, those extremists, those radicals like Jesus or the Apostle Paul, right? Do we love people enough to speak the truth to them? Do we love God enough to obey the Great Commission as believers? Or maybe it's not about our love for people per se, or because why we're not sharing the faith, but maybe it has to do with our focus. Maybe we are so worldly-minded that we forget about heaven or hell altogether. That's another reason. We must remember that we are just here for a short time, and then eternity forever, which goes on and 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 on. This is getting a little awkward. And on, right? If it was eternity, it would go on forever, right? It would never stop. And there is only two places people go when they die. We'll either go to heaven where we'll be in the presence of God as children of God, living in the glory of God, enjoying fellowship with God for eternity, or the horror 
the most fearful thing to ever think, many will go to hell where they will face the wrath of God for all eternity. Many try to say hell is the absence of God, which I think that's where the Catholics stances on this. But in reality, God is very much present in hell. It's where his wrath, his anger, and his justice will be abiding for everybody who has rebelled against him and Satan his angels for all eternity. It's a scary place to be. Scripture says it's a scary thing to fall into hands or fall into the judgment of the living God. Heaven and hell are reality. The question is, are we living like they are? Are we talking to others about the gospel, about Christ? Because many who we care deeply for are right now in the present moment under the wrath of God. But let's continue on. And we're in verse 30. We're going to skip to verse 30 for time's sake. It says this. I, and that's talking about Jesus He says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So in verse 30 here, Christ makes it clear that he's not working on his own. He's not the lone ranger, right? We remember the lone, well, I'm being a little bit dated here. I know a lot of the teenagers probably like the lone ranger. Who's that, right? But the lone ranger. But Christ submitted wholly and fully to the Father. He didn't work by himself. Which leads to point number three. Christ submits to the Father. Point number three is simple. Christ submits to the Father. You may be thinking, how can Christ submit to someone and still be God? Well, this gives us a glimpse of the Godhead. We recognize they have different roles, different functions, and yet Christ is no less than the Father. It would be similar to a husband-wife relationship. They both have different roles, different functions in the marriage, and yet both are of equal value. Both are of equal importance in God's sight. We can definitely learn from Christ's perfect submission to the Father. As Christ submits to the Father, we are called to Submit to Christ. So we are blessed. We have such an opportunity to submit every area of our life to Christ. And you may be thinking, wait a minute here. That doesn't sound like a blessing to have to submit to Christ. That sounds more like slavery. But it's not. I can assure you it's not because Christ knows what is best for us. We have to remember, He is God, right? He knows what we need. He loves us. We can trust Him. We can have confidence, assurance that God will lead us in the right direction. Amen? But let's move on to verse 37. And it says this, And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. Wow! Christ doesn't parse His words with these religious leaders, the Pharisees. Jesus is not trying to be politically correct. He isn't trying to look unified with the Pharisees. He's, just, he's not trying to just get along with the religious leaders in His area. That's not what He's doing. He isn't trying to be relevant or cool. 
That's not why he came. Christ was here to glorify the Father, not cater to false teachers. Amen? Jesus tells the Pharisees they do not have God's word abiding in them. In other words, God's word is not in their heart. Why? Because they don't believe in Christ. Some of you may be thinking, why did the Pharisees need to believe in Christ anyway? To know God. I mean, they are experts of the Old Testament, the law, not the New Testament. Well, this leads to point number four. Christ is Lord of all the Scriptures. Christ is Lord of all the Scriptures. Verse 39, we'll move down to, says this, you search the Scriptures, talking to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let's skip down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Ouch. The Pharisees thought life was found in the words of the Scriptures themselves. They missed the heart of the Old Testament. They ignored the main perspective, which was the Messiah, which was Christ. It wasn't just a little error either or a mistake. It revealed their hearts. It proved that they weren't gods in the first place. They weren't children of God in the first place. The Old Testament looks to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The Old Testament waits in anticipation for Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ reminds us that he didn't come to change the law or make the law better. No, he says, I have come to fulfill it, to bring it to completion, to bring it together, to complete it, to make it whole. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He brings completeness to the Word of God. The words of the Bible are not life without those being connected to Christ. We don't treasure Scripture because it makes our life better. Nor do we treasure Scripture because we get blessings or promises. Nor do we treasure Scripture because it helps us have a happy marriage or it helps us in our lives. We treasure Scripture because Christ is at the center of the Scriptures. Kevin DeYoung says this, because Christ fulfills Scripture, we view everything in the Old and New Testament in light of Christ and we defend the Bible by preaching and teaching Christ. When we're reading the word. Do we see Christ this morning? When we are meditating on the Old Testament, do we see Christ? When we are memorizing the scriptures, do we see our Lord and Savior Christ? Christ is the word. The word is Christ. If we love Christ, we'll love his word. If we don't love his word, you can surely know you don't love Christ either. They go hand in hand. What or who do we treasure this morning? What or who do I treasure 
this morning. Let's finish by looking at back at verse 41 through 44. This is Jesus again, and he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Jesus reveals to us the sad truth about the Pharisees, about their religion, because it was only skin deep. They weren't dedicated to the law because they love God. They, were, they didn't fast weekly. They didn't fast for a month at a time because they wanted to glorify God. They didn't study because they wanted to serve others. We find out their hearts were filled with self. They wanted glory. They wanted honor. They wanted more power. They wanted the best of everything. Their hearts were full of pride and selfishness, which we discussed last week. They loved themselves too much to love God. And others, which leads to point number five. Christ is Lord and deserves all glory. Christ is Lord and deserves all glory. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks the question, what is the chief end or what is the purpose of man? And the answer, of course, is man's chief end or man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were made to exalt Christ. We were made to glorify Christ. We were made to magnify Christ. We were made to be worshipers of Christ. Amen? That means we live for Christ in our marriages. That means we live for Christ in our families. That means we live for Christ in our workplace. That means we live for Christ in our trials and our struggles. That means we live for Christ when life is going good. That means we live for Christ in our mundane moments when we're just sort of cruising. We live for Christ. Our life is supposed to be centered on, wrapped up in Christ. In conclusion, Christ is Lord. He is God. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of the living and the dead. He is Lord of the word. He is the fulfillment of the word. He is Lord and he deserves all of our glory. Is Christ your Lord and Savior this morning? Have you turned to him in repentance and faith? What about for those of us who are believers in Christ? Do we live for Christ? Do we recognize that Christ is God? And does our lives look like it? Are we growing in our faith in Christ? Are we maturing in our love? Are we growing in our gratitude for the gospel? Are we seeing ourselves clear as we are growing in Christ? The reality of it is, church, the closer we get to Christ, the clearer we start seeing our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. I am daily reminded of my own brokenness and sinfulness. For example, just in my marriage alone, I'm called as a husband to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church, by the way? Besides perfectly. He gave everything he had, including his life for the church. And Christ calls me to love my wife with that same intensity, that same perfectness, that same manner. And I must confess to you in front of everybody here that I fail miserably daily 
in that area. Instead of saying, though, I'm just going to try harder, or I'm just going to depend on myself all the more, that's not what I'm called to do. What we're called to do is run to the cross, cling to Christ, depend on Him to transform us. My sinfulness is a continued reminder of my great need for the Savior, for Christ. Recognizing His grace is sufficient for my brokenness. His grace is sufficient for you and your brokenness as well. There's hope for sinners like me. There's hope for sinners like you. And that hope is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you as we recognize your astounding sacrifice as we recognize your wisdom, how you talk to the Pharisees. Help us to have that balance of grace and truth. Be willing to be full of love and humility, but at the same time, be willing to speak the truth and be willing to stand passionately, zealously for you as well. I ask, Father, that you be with all the churches that are walking in your word, that are passionately teaching the gospel, I I ask that you empower all of us to be more empowered to turn this world upside, upside down for you. I ask that you help us to turn Marco Island upside down for you. I ask us, though, to just help us to turn our own households upside down for you. I thank you for your word that continues to, to show us the direction we need to go. Help us to be students of your word, to know it. Help it to abide in our hearts. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.